This is Griffin Olenek, assistant editor at Commonweal Magazine. Today I'm here with Julian Ravi, associate director of music at the Center for Music and Liturgy at St. Thomas More, the Catholic Chapel and Center at Yale University. Julian's the winner of the Vatican's 2016 Francesco Siciliani Prize for Sacred Music, where his Kyrie, the musical setting of the penitential rite at the beginning of the Roman Catholic Mass, was selected by a jury for first prize that included world-renowned composers Helmut Rilling and Arvo Pert. The Love of God, part of his Mass of the Divine Shepherd, which premiered at Carnegie Hall in 2015, was selected as the communion antiphon for the papal Mass celebrated by Pope Francis at the World Meeting of Families in Philadelphia that same year. I first got to know Julian when I was a graduate student studying Dante at Yale. Since then, we've become friends, and over the past few years, we've had conversations on everything from the notion of time in St. Augustine's Confessions, to the physicality of sound and its theological implications, to the hero's journey and the epic of Gilgamesh. As I expect will become clear from our conversation, Julian's a kind of polymath. He has undergraduate and graduate degrees in biochemistry and molecular biophysics from Yale and Caltech, and a master's in composing from Cambridge. So Julian is a person for whom sacred music is a way of living, thinking, and praying. And Julian, thanks so much for being here, and welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Oh, thank you, Griffin. It's a pleasure to be with you on this beautiful late summer afternoon looking out over the Hudson River. I think this is an inspiring setting here, so thanks. Well, we're very glad to have you. Um, so, Julian, before we dive into your music and your life story, both of which I think are fascinating, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a brief introduction to sacred music itself. In your mind, what exactly is sacred music, and how do you think it's different from other kinds of music? Well, I'll answer that perhaps taking one step back and speaking more broadly about sacred art in general. Through the sacred arts... I think that we attempt to look toward God to create some kind of vehicle or language that allows us to just take one little step beyond what we can tangibly experience in our normal mm. you know, experience as human beings and just take one step beyond that. Mm. I think that is the goal of most sacred artists that we attempt to provide a vehicle that gives people a way to tap into a connection with God, you know, to take one step beyond what we can in our, you know, kind of mundane existence mm. to try to look beyond that. Mm. Um, you know, certainly I've heard, you know, sacred music being described as a ladder that we use to ascend toward heaven toward god i think of it maybe not in such a you know concrete sense as that so the music is not the point itself no the music is pointing towards something else it's yeah i guess my hope is that it would be a vehicle yeah. to allow the holy spirit to allow god to point them 
you know, toward God. Yeah, you know, I think of a, a composition or a pop song. We often talk about the genius of the person who composed it, right. or we talk about the beauty of the song itself. But what yes. you're saying is, <laughs> sacred music is not is not about sacred music at all. Correct. It's pointing to God. Correct. Uh, it's Correct. going somewhere else. It yes. wants to lift off. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's yes. interesting. No, correct. <laughs> and and I'm and you know thank you for for starting off with this question. I I need to think about this more, and maybe I'll have a different answer for you next time. But you know what this gets me thinking of today is the idea of art being a vehicle, mm. being a window, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, art is powerful for the exact reason that it suggests things that we cannot simply state in black and white. Mm -hmm. It does something more. And what that more is, is very difficult to pinpoint or mm. perhaps even to explain. Mm. But I do think that the point of sacred art is to have that more mm. be an opening mm. for a deeper, closer connection with God. Isn't that interesting that so much of contemporary culture, I'm thinking of films, paintings, music especially, it's all about the artists themselves. It seems always to be drawing attention back to the artist. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is the artist, it's almost like the, the job of the artist is to disappear or to get out of God's way. Yes. And, you know, we, we may come back to this point later in talking about the process of writing a piece of music, mm. but that's part of my intentional process, the way I think about musical notes mm. is that my job is to listen to what they are suggesting, you know, to start off. I mean, I have to start with something, mm. but once there is some starting pattern of notes, mm. some you know motif that my job is to listen and try to intuit what they want to do mm. and then to facilitate their unfolding. So if you were a painter, you would say like, well, I'm trying to look at, you know, my palette and I've got orange, I have blue. How do they want to combine? Uh, yes. Okay. So yes. You're, you're really just, you're kind of like conducting. Yes. Rather than. Yes. Or faci you're facilitating. <laughs> you facilitate. Faci that, yeah. That's my goal. And the, the more I can remove myself mm. from that, the better. Interesting. Interesting. I'm, just, I'm reminded as you're speaking of Dante, uh, as you know, Julian, we used to talk about Dante a lot. Yes. And I don't really talk about Dante so much anymore. But he had this idea that uh, he noticed, you know, as arts, uh, as the arts and poetry, painting, sculpture, everything in his time in the 14th century was being revolutionized by people like Giotto, who were bringing perspective into their painting for the first time. Yes. Poets that were speaking as he was for the first time in the vernacular. Yes. And there was this sense that Artists were thought to be proud figures, that it was all about them, mm. about their ego, and especially about their talent. And mm -hmm. Dante, he's, he's an egotistical guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows he's talented. And so he takes care to figure out for himself, how can he be humble and an artist at the same time? And he has this line, he says, well, I don't really do anything. I'm more like a notary. I take dictation. Mm. I listen for what the spirit is trying to say to me. Yeah. And he says, I, I take note. So it's interesting to me as you're talking about, well, what do the notes want to do? I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about like the connections between 
what you're saying sacred artists do and what was articulated by a sacred poet, he called himself, he, he called the Divine Comedy a sacred poem mm-hmm. in the 14th century. Well, um, I, uh, he nailed it. And <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, and um, I want to look up this quote afterwards. You know, that's exactly it is, you know, it's, it's my job. And I think it's the job of we liturgical musicians and, you know, sacred musicians, sacred artists in general to listen, listen to what the spirit wants not even would want us to do but would want to have exist Hmm. on earth so you become a kind of instrument yourself that's my hope (laughs) (laughs) that's a modest hope I'm interested in this path that you've chosen yes. for yourself yes. as a sacred artist, mm-hmm. which is not. I mean, you don't wake up one day and you say, well, today I think I'll become a sacred artist. <laughs> I'm going to have, you know, this <laughs> transcendent vision and I'm going to kind of try to gently nudge people towards it. Well, except that that's kind of what happened to me. But so, I think that is a very bizarre circumstance. So how did this happen? So how did you get from you're pursuing a Ph.D.? in molecular biophysics at mm-hmm. Caltech. Yes. You were a scientist uh, during your undergrad studies at Yale. Yes. In the program was called MBMB, Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry. Right. Those things that I was not able to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that I did not excel at in high school. And so I steered clear of it in college. But, you know, you're now a professional composer. Mm-hmm. You've won international prizes. Mm-hmm. So you've had some success now as mm-hmm. a composer, but this was never... Can you please tell us how this happened? Right. So I guess, you know, you're, I appreciate the opportunity to talk this through with you. I think you've helped me realize one thing about my uh, trajectory, which is that I always have been interested in pushing Hmm. new frontiers, Mm -hmm. whether it has been more recently through sacred art, trying to reach towards something you know beyond Mm -hmm. or through biochemistry you know looking at the molecular level you know more closely you know being at the forefront of Mm -hmm. you know looking at life closely at the molecular Mm -hmm. level i mean it was a very exciting time Mm -hmm. when i was at both uh, yale as an undergrad and at caltech you know it was really starting back in those days it was just beginning to unpack the interconnectedness between levels of control uh, within the cell mm. had you know, previously been thought to be separate. Mm. And then after that, I went on at Caltech. I was working in uh, neuroscience labs, mm. you know, looking at the molecular mechanics of how um, electronic signals are transmitted from one neuron to the next. You know, it can, that continues to be a fascination of mine. I didn't leave because I disliked science. No. I I'm, I'm totally you know, fascinated by it. And I love the idea of the brain being this vast frontier that we really don't understand. The complexity is, is immense. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I left was that I had a calling mm-hmm. to pursue music. And, you know, when you have that kind of calling in your life, it's not a choice. Mm-hmm. It is a calling. You say a calling. And How did that come about? Well, I had been a performer in my, as a child and as a teenager, I'd been a, a serious pianist and organist mm-hmm. and had considered 
pursuing a performing career early on, but decided to go into science. And my moment of epiphany mm. occurred about a year into my PhD program, where I was actually at the end of a weekend visit back to Yale, the first time I had visited since graduation. Mm. And I happened over that weekend to have some wonderful musical experiences with some old friends, a, a lengthy jam session on the Saturday night at one of the university organs. So I had this, you know, wonderful, musically stimulating weekend. And it was the, at the end of that weekend, as I was leaving uh, New York, leaving JFK Airport to go back to, back to California. The, yes, exactly, that the epiphany occurred. And it just, you know, I really believe that God spoke to me and it, uh, it's a, it's a cliche to say, but it, when something hits you, when something actually hits you like a wall of bricks, mm -hmm. it really does feel like that. Yeah. Um, you're, <laughs> the intention or the volition of the universe, uh, you can, you feel God's will. Yes. But, but this wouldn't be surprising to, I don't know, the Old Testament prophets who talk about, you know, God's hands, right? Moving yes. them or pulling them. Uh, who talk mm -hmm. about being on fire with the spirit wouldn't have been mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't sound like nonsense to the saints or somebody like Francis of Assisi. We we talked a lot about uh, Francis of Assisi uh, during one of our famous Commonweal lunches, where Jul yes. Julian was the guest here in our <laughs> in our offices. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it's crazy at all. Maybe I'm just living two and a half millennia too late. Well, yeah, we're <laughs> let's say our culture is maybe less receptive to these sorts of narratives. Yeah, yeah. But so it was, uh, I mean, it's really moving and it's really, in a way, it's, as I'm listening, I mean, I'm reminded of decisions I've made myself, but mm -hmm. what's so striking to me about this story is the sense of fearlessness that you needed to have or that one needs to have when they listen to the voice of God. Well, the quality, the the attribute or the you know emotion of fear didn't even actually cross my mind. Mm. I mean, when a decision is being handed to you, mm. you know, when it's really being handed to you, you just accept it mm. because you know it's right. Mm. And that's all that matters mm. is, you know, knowing whether the thing you're going to do is really the right thing. Mm. If you are doing the right thing, you will know it. And I know that, you know, any of us can think of, you know, any number of, uh, you know, events and circumstances in our own lives mm. that, you know, align with, you know, with this feeling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's what it was for mm. me. It was just a fact that was being handed to me that this mm. is what I'm supposed to do. Interesting that you say it's a fact being handed to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you were listening, or as, as, as I was listening, as you were speaking about me, music i had i was thinking of thomas merton's idea of the true self mm -hmm. and uh, you know that that ourselves no matter what we're doing what our external circumstances are mm -hmm. there's a true self willed into existence by god and our task on earth is to have that self come out to have that self uh, begin doing things in the world and so as you were describing molecules and mm -hmm. cells i mm -hmm. thought to myself oh well this is just julian exactly what he does with musical notes doing the same thing it's just <laughs> with a different medium or uh -huh, a different uh -huh. medium how do you go from the idea 
for a piece of music or the idea for a composition mm-hmm. to its final uh, version, mm-hmm. to where it can be performed and received and talked about and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad that you brought up the process. It reminds me of a notion that I sometimes hear from people uh, who ask me, well, do you sometimes just wake up in the middle of the night with a new piece Mm -hmm. in your head that needs to be, you know, that you need to write down immediately? You know, your answer is yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it happens. Yeah, that's how I do my job. You know, one one inspired hour a week and I'm all set. You know, (laughs) 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 I spend the rest of the time reading Commonweal magazine. Okay, thank you. That's that's not how it works for most composers. You know, Mozart was an exception. Mozart is famous, of course, for having notated most of his pieces in pen in their absolute final form mm. with no written drafts whatsoever. And it seems like a true mm. miracle mm-hmm. that anyone could do this. I suspect that even Mozart had an editing process. Mm. It's just that he had such a prodigious memory that he could keep the whole piece and its drafts Mm. in his head and do his editing process while he was taking a nice stroll around town or, you know, in the woods in Austria. Mm -hmm. But, you know, aside from Mozart, most other composers go through many drafts and sort of the polar opposite is Beethoven, who's, you know, Mm -hmm. famous for Mm -hmm. having hundreds of drafts of some passages. Yeah, we have some passages of his where we actually have Mm. 200, 210 drafts of a single few bars. And what would, why would he rewrite so much? He had, why would a composer rewrite? Yeah. I mean, you know, he had a really clear vision Hmm. and, you know, for me, the process and the, the difficulty with it and the fact that the reason that it's, that it often feels like a torturous process Hmm. is because I will have a vision for a piece, but it is, cloudy. It's a bit abstract. Mm. And my job as the composer Mm. is to then crystallize this vision Mm. so that it exists as concrete, discrete notes. Mm. But you have to give it a form. Yes, exactly. But you have to incarnate it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Theological Mm -hmm, term. mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm, Exactly. You have to give it, you have to create it. Yes. But Getting from the point A that I've described, you know, the nebulous vision to the very concrete final form where it must exist Mm -hmm. in concrete notes, Mm -hmm. dots on a page in very specific places, that, that can be a torturous process because as you're on the trajectory from A to B, you will discover 
interactions between patterns of notes mm. that sound great. Cool. And you think, yeah, this sounds cool. This sounds good. So you actually end up, it's not just coming from your head. It comes from you observing your own process of creation. Uh, yes. It's this cir- very circular process. Interesting. But the problem is the circle can become this kind of spiral that spirals in a different direction ah, okay. from what you may have initially planned. At mm. least this is you know, my own personal experience. Mm. So, you know, if I had an initial vision that's going one way, but then I happen to find these patterns of notes that are interacting in a certain way that really is very appealing, but is diverging from my initial vision, Mm. that's where I have a very difficult choice to make. Mm. And that choice is the choice that I face thousands of times in the process even of writing a short piece of music. I believe that I, at least I, I hope that I'm getting better at this and that I am sort of streamlining the process and that over the past decade, I've been honing my skills and learning how to operate at multiple different levels of temporal zoom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, close in and far back Mm -hmm. at the same time, the way that a sculptor needs to. Mm -hmm. And that by, you know, viewing the work in progress from up close, from one step back and from three steps back, simultaneously that that helps to keep this animal that's forming Mm. on track with my initial vision so it's interesting like um, for michelangelo it would be there's as much attentiveness i don't know to to adam's hand as there is to the placement of the figure of god and adam at the center of the ceiling as there is to all the characters surrounding it so there's this attentiveness both to the particularity of the piece but also how it shapes up as a whole. Yes, exactly. Uh, so interesting. Uh, yes. And I think I'm no sculptor myself, but I imagine that the challenge of sculpting is your desire to have that hand work up close from every different angle mm. and from far back from every right. different angle and I see, see how it saying. relates with yeah. the rest of the figure. Right. See how it works both as a static image and as an image that is in motion or that suggests motion because of course that's right. what you know sculptors are I, I right. think you know what they're what the great sculptors are achieving is motion. So as an artist you have to transcend the limitedness of your own singular perspective and try to adopt multiple perspectives almost at the same time exactly thank you for thank you for articulating the point that is the point thank you griffin yes exactly there's a theological connection here too is where we say well the the human experience is so limited we have trouble seeing past our own noses Mm -hmm. but the divine perspective embraces all so the artist in a way ends up imitating god or, or playing god or, or let's say... Well, I'm not sure how comfortable I am in those shoes. But, but ad- yes, no, exactly. That's the point. Adopting a kind of divine perspective, which is all-embracing, all-encompassing. That's, that's the, the challenge. That's the that challenge. Is the, you know, that's the goal. That's the challenge. So this yes. is what you do with the other 23 hours. <laughs> that you're not, that you're <laughs> Aside not. from the, yes, the 4.30 a.m. bolt of inspiration. Yes, it's this process of refining. Mm. And you know, I like to think of it in comparison with the sculptor's work Mm -hmm. who will work up close most of the time 
but then has to step back, look at it from different perspectives and ask the question, well, how does this fit into the mm -hmm. whole? So, yeah, it's really a lengthy process of refining. Mm -hmm. Getting back to our conversation from the start of, of our time today, another one of my goals in the process is to remove myself as mm. much as possible and allow the notes to do what they want to do, is so which is, you know, another question of how to control what direction this spiral, you know, m moves in. Is it a spiral that is dominated by my, you know, heavy involvement? Or can I allow the spiral to grow in a more organic sense by being a little more hands off mm. and trying to intuit how it wants to grow? Just talking very practically about what I do mm. once I have a few notes on the page. Mm -hmm. First of all, I have to have a concept for the piece first. Mm. And what I'm trying to work on in my own compositional growth these days is the conceptual clarity of the musical ideas, mm. having a you know, consistent and clear musical concept. And that concept could be something concrete, like an actual melodic pattern, mm -hmm. or perhaps one step more abstract than that would be a harmonic pattern, a pattern, an underlying pattern mm -hmm. of chords rather than a one dimensional pattern of musical notes that mm -hmm. is a melodic pattern. You know, the, the uh, piece that is based on a harmonic pattern is, for example, the Bach's Goldberg Variations, mm -hmm. which sound and feel unified, even though on their surface, the melodies are all different from one variation to the next. So at first glance, the piece looks like a bit of a conundrum, mm. but it feels right. And the reason mm. it feels right, the reason it feels unified is because of that you know, har harmonic pattern. So in any case, you know, my concept for the piece could be something as direct and overt as mm. a melodic pattern or a harmonic pattern, or it could be something a little more uh, abstract than that, like a progression of temporal relationships rather than simply a rhythmic pattern, mm. a set of rhythmic relationships that changes in a certain way over time, mm. or even of harmonic or melodic relationships where the intervals between the notes, for example, mm. change in a certain way over time. So I'm sort of talking about the difference between arithmetic and calculus if right. you were yes. you know yeah that makes sense so yeah. that's you know and so that is something that i play with you know mm -hmm. changing rates and changes in the rates of change mm -hmm. as patterns of notes unfold or the concept might be something even more philosophical mm -hmm. driven perhaps more by an emotion or a feeling of growing in the in the sense of warmth or the feeling of warmth mm. that a piece might have i mean just to give one example but that's mm. you know one thing that i tried to do recently with this um piece uh with my setting of the o antiphons mm. that's being premiered in a few months from now oh, interesting. so uh, maybe so we the can... advent and uh, yes the advent uh erratic yes exactly the, yes right yes the exactly the famous antiphons that get sung 
um, in the seven days right. leading up to By monastic communities. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, I thought we could listen to one of your pieces and then talk a bit about just what it brings up for us spiritually, psychologically theologically, musically, whatever you want. So um, we're going to listen to one of your earlier compositions, Grant Me, O Lord, based on the, the famous prayer by Thomas Aquinas.
the first thing to say about this piece is it's just you feel an intense peace having listened to it. I'm very relaxed now. <laughs> no, but I think it's such a fantastic piece. Thank you. I listened to it the other day, actually on the subway as I was commuting home. Mm-hmm. And the, the difference between the male and the female voices mm-hmm. kind of caused me to look at everybody that was on the subway mm-hmm. in this new light. Mm-hmm. You have the, the request, grant me, O Lord, deeper relationship. Yeah, that's what all of us want. This is a universal request. It's, yes. such, a, <laughs> it's such an honest prayer and an mm-hmm. honest song. And so I guess I was hoping you could explain the genesis of it. How did this piece come to be? Well, this piece holds a special place in my heart, and I just attribute this entirely to the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is a piece where I just opened my hands, opened my heart, and you know, asked the Spirit to you know, move through me. The story behind it is that back in fall 2013, so this will be coming up to the five-year anniversary, mm-hmm. November 2013. A dear friend of mine, an elderly professor from Yale history professor, Cynthia Russett, was ill. She was in the Smilo Cancer Center at Yale New Haven Hospital after a decade of battling cancer. Cynthia had been the longest-serving member of our choir at St. Thomas More Chapel. Back when I was an undergrad there from 98 to 02, she was one of our core choir members, had been there for, I think, you know, 20 years at that point. And I was back in Connecticut in 2013 and went in to see her as she was really declining. Hmm. And, you know, she had lost a great deal of body mass at that point Hmm. and was, of course, you know, frustrating experience for hers as Hmm. it would be for anyone. Yet, even through such total challenge and hardship and pain, Hmm. Cynthia maintained her ebullient spirit Mm. and verve and passion for life, for conversation Mm. on all topics, history, art, music, popular culture. Mm. I mean, it was just always a thrill to have any sort of conversation with Cynthia and hear her pointed and spirited Mm. views. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this was true even in that very difficult time Mm. in the hospital with her. And I went home that night and, you know, talking about the inspiration in the Mm. middle of the night, I guess, not with the whole piece being delivered to me on a platter, but I remember clearly going to bed that night around midnight, closing my eyes and just having this thought hit me that, Mm. oh my goodness, I need to leap out of bed and Mm. do something musical Mm -hmm. for Cynthia 
inspired by her to honor her and there is mm -hmm. no time to waste mm -hmm. and I got up and researched online looking for a prayer mm -hmm. some you know prayer to set to music and mm -hmm. I found this that night you know an hour or two later and I knew this was it this was the correct text it's just an honest prayer that anybody could and would surely pray do you mind reading the prayer oh I'd be happy to Grant me, O Lord my God, a mind to know you, a heart to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. It is very beautiful. It's a final prayer almost. Yes, exactly. So... I went to bed that night knowing this was my task, got up the next morning, canceled all my commitments for the next week, oh. cleared the calendar and just thought and contemplated mm. about how this prayer might be voiced mm. through music. How did you end up making the decisions that you made, the artistic decisions? Dual choirs. I see you've got the musical notation here. And it says freely and flowing. Yes. I think that's certainly the, the sense that one gets from the piece. But what was the decision-making process? One piece of it was finding the chant melody, Divinum Mysterium, of the Father's love begotten. And I don't recall exactly why I thought <laughs> that that happened. was a fit. Yeah. But somehow that gentle, stepwise, rising melodic mm. pattern and it proceeds mm. upwards further from there. It's like a ladder. Uh, yes, exactly. It, yeah. That melody seemed like this kind of ladder to God mm. that maybe I could kind of hitch this piece to. Mm. So I had a couple of different parts to the approach. Mm. Um, one was the idea of either incorporating some of this chant melody or at least being inspired right. by it. You know, maybe I would have that as an inspiration, come up with my own melody that is, you know, inspired by it, modeled upon it somehow, and then let the, you know, original chant fall aside. What I ended up coming up with melodically is uh, an entirely melodically original piece mm. that morphs into just a hint of the original chant it's melody yeah. in its closing three or four bars. Yeah, That's all it is. It suggests... It's got the whiff of the medieval about it. Yes. But it's deeply contemporary. But it's also not saccharine. It's not sentimental. It's... Right. It's real. <laughs> right. That, I mean, that, that's the hope. And you know, part of that process was asking if I can create something that leads up mm -hmm. and will hand itself off to the start of this plain chant. Interesting. And then leave the rest unsung and unspoken and only suggested. Mm. So that's my concept for this piece. In this instance, it is that the entire first 95% of the piece leads up 
to mm. this just beginning of a plain chant melody mm. and sort of links hands with it and then leaves the rest unspoken. So that's a kind of, so, uh, I mean, spiritually, this is what it's like to let somebody go. Yes. What's it like could, to mm-hmm. entrust somebody to this hand that reaches out? It could be the hand of God, the spirit. And there's a sense, there's a great faith in letting a, letting a person be carried on. Yes. But you know they're going to be fine. Like, right. you know, you have this deep sense that they'll be okay. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that was one kind of strand of my approach. And then the other strand of my approach is something that I try to do with all sung music that I write, which is asking myself the same question of the text mm. that I mentioned earlier with respect to musical notes. Mm. You know, when I have a few notes on the page asking the notes, wait, well, hey, what do you guys want to do when I have text? I ask the same question of the words. Mm. How do you want want to be voiced mm, interesting and how did these words uh, want to be voiced well as you, as you heard i allow them to be sung you know in a clear straightforward way kind of it's, wrap around each other it almost like envelops you in sound it's very protective there is this cyclical pattern this stepwise yeah. rise and fall that you might think of as the you know the, the waves of the ocean that, yeah. that, that are just supporting the foreground of the piece mm. which is the very stepwise smooth melody that the ladies sing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is sort of grafted on top right. of this repetitive and I would say contemplative mm-hmm. pattern mm-hmm. that the men repeat. And of course, the musical interest occurs when your expectations for how these two components should align mm are not entirely met and that the Mm. alignment of Mm -hmm. the two parts shifts a little bit one way or another. Mm -hmm. And with just the slightest little change or shifting of the alignment between the two parts, you get a number of differences in harmonies that result. You get like this almost like I'm thinking of like a conch shell that spins. Yes. And or a spiral that goes on spinning. And it's because it's, there's something slightly askew mm-hmm. that you end up getting this beautiful curved shape that mm-hmm. kind of repeats uh, yes. and it builds itself up into something that were it not for that little flaw, it would just be a, a perfect sphere, which is boring, you know, a circle, which doesn't do anything. But here you've got, uh, you've got something happening. The process yes. being like a spiral. And it is a spiral that grows and that moves. So... I wrote this in about, I spent about a week and a half on it. Mm. And I knew at that point that Cynthia's time was very limited. And uh, a little shout out to some local musicians here. Mm. We're up uh, near Columbia University, of course, Mm -hmm. and just it's only a few blocks Mm. to uh, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Mm -hmm. Their conductor, Kent Tritle, and his singers were very generous. I showed up on, I remember it was their rehearsal for the first Sunday of Advent of 2013. I had finished writing the piece the night before, woke up in the morning on this Saturday 
asking myself the question, well, who can I take this to who can sight read the piece right. and record it at right. a, you know, at a high level so that I can give Cynthia the recordings mm. so that she can hear it now, like mm-hmm. today. So I just crashed the rehearsal that Kent was holding. Oh, so he's the, yeah. he's the choral professor at Manhattan School of Music oh, too. So, you know, yeah. So a real, you know, lo- one of your local leading musicians yeah. right here. I just walked in mid-rehearsal, interrupted him, told him in, you know, 10 seconds that I have this new piece. And like, yeah. Drop everything. (laughs) I've dropped everything. So you also must drop everything. Yeah. And they were so generous and so gracious to take time out of a very intensive rehearsal of Mm. theirs to record this piece for me on the spot. They sight read it flawlessly. Mm. And I brought the recording to Cynthia Mm. that afternoon uh, to her home. And that ended up being her final hours in Mm. her home before she moved to a hospice hospice. facility. And in those final three days, Mm. she listened to this piece, I'm told, many, many times. Mm. And I am just so glad and grateful that... I was able to get this down, mm. able to get it recorded mm-hmm. and, you and know, to able to, to you know to bring it to her as a gift mm-hmm. that she was, you know, able to receive and enjoy for her final 3 That's days. Very beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Well, I thought we could listen to one of your compositions, Kyrie, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Great.
So this is actually, I would say probably my favorite piece that you've done or that I've heard. I guess let me just start off by what I hear in the piece or what's so moving to me mm-hmm. about the piece. Mm-hmm. is It seems you have this whole drama of lost humanity coming to God, turning to God, and being accepted. Mm-hmm. And you have the whole mm. emotional, spiritual, existential drama drawn out of three lines, right? Yeah. Kyrie eleison, mm-hmm. Christ eleison, so Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, mm-hmm. Lord have mercy. And that I link to short melodic lines that yes. also are you know, very limited. Yes, it's an incredibly limited piece, but it's not. I mean, it's limited in terms of the ingredients that go into it, but yeah. not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much drama between the different elements of the piece that you start off and you're kind of like, is this even music? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, it just sounds yeah. like somebody's warming up or it sounds, yeah. it's so, it's almost scary yes. to listen to, but mm-hmm. that's, <laughs> maybe the human condition is kind of scary. And yeah. the Kyrie comes at this, you know, this important moment in the mass where you have uh, the community gathering essentially to beg mercy from God, saying we're a community of sinners. We've gone astray. And so you have that reflected musically in the discordant voices. And yet they're not entirely discordant. There's something orderly or present. Or there's at least the potential for order there's the that, potential. They, that needs to be discovered. Yeah. And it, so anyway, could you say more about this piece, how it came into being? Mm-hmm. This is the piece that you won the Francesco Siciliani Prize. And the recording we just listened to was the one from Perugia, Italy. So this is quite a big deal, this piece. And I'm wondering if you could speak how it came about, how you composed it. What sorts of ideas were running through your head? It begins with these rising scales mm-hmm. in the in the ladies, again, rising towards God mm. and uh, in an obsessive way. Yeah. And of course, yes, it is scary. Yeah. And the degree of repetition and obsession yes. does not seem mm. normal. No. Um, it is obsessive. Underneath that... The men have, so the roles here between men and women are kind of switched Mm -hmm. with respect to what they were for Grant Me a Lord. Here, the women have the repeating motifs and the men have this counterpoint to that, which is descending instead of ascending. But the men are the ones who change. Mm -hmm. And if you listen closely, you'll hear that the patterns of the men's notes get darker and lower Mm. and get into territory with more flats, uh, A flats, G flats. You'll hear, you'll perceive that as a darkening of the quality of the sound as this first minute and a half Mm. unfolds. So they are the ones changing Mm. against the pretty static pattern of the women who who actually are they're totally static in their melodic content but there is some change in time okay so i do allow that you know the temporal element to shift and then the second part of the piece is this counterpoint to the whole to the first half which just begins with a Mm. single repeated note Mm -hmm. so instead of this feeling in the first half of the piece where we feel perhaps ungrounded because you know the women are rising the men are falling and we're not sure if there's any home base if there's anything grounding us or if we're just searching for something else right the counterpoint to that is here in the second part where you have this pattern that starts with 
groundedness mm -hmm. on an A natural, mm -hmm. this repeated note that becomes the the foundation, the anchor sounds, for the rest of the entire piece. Yeah. And then the entire piece grows out of this one pitch, this A natural that then some of the voices then start moving stepwise. Christe. And then finally traverse a third. It's so interesting because it begins to sound like church music again, or it begins to sound like something we're familiar with. But it's just this one solitary voice. And that's kind of, for me, why it's so moving is that it takes this one person's faith or this one person turning themselves to God and then everybody else can follow. Everybody else can kind of get it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the, yes, the single voice that leads the way. And then you see this shift in the choir instead of being sort of scattered and running in every which direction they find unity yes they find unity yes. surrounding this central voice one of the altos in a low you know fair, fairly low range it's got a warmth of tone yes. to it and emanating from that warm tone everyone can get on board mm -hmm. and find their own role within yes. this unified new sound. So it's a kind of beautiful representation of what the church is at its best. Yes. Uh, but also it's worth, I mean, it's, you know, uh, we're recording this in the in the context of an unfolding sex abuse crisis. The level of vitriol and discord that's characterized uh, certainly Catholic media in the past couple of weeks. It, it reminds me of that first part, that need to beg for mercy. But here you present this beautiful vision of a church that's able to harmonize and able to coalesce around something more solid, but which is... The sureness of the mercy given by Christ is so interesting exactly. to me. You know, it, exactly, yeah. and you know that is the that's the message of the Kyrie. I give the three sections of this piece a little header. The first one for this opening plea, this obsessive plea, I call "De profundis," and then parenthetically I write, "Out of the depths I cry to thee." The reference from Psalm mm -hmm. 130. Mm -hmm. um, the second section, I gave this sort of subtitle of the soul and her savior. Mm. And I see it as this love song between a soul that is being saved mm -hmm. and the Lord mm -hmm. that is providing that saving grace. Mm. And I've given the subtitle for the third section of God is my help. My soul is at rest mm. from Psalm 62. Mm. So and there's definitely a restful quality to the end. Yes. Uh, there's a harmony and the voices seem to kind of float on top of each other. And it's only at the very end that all of the voices find their place to all sing together mm. in total unity or um, homophonically and ultimately ending up on the same two notes. But it takes that whole process of parts two and three for the, all of the voices to enter 
and then coalesce and then reach their point of unity. Hmm. Well, let's hope that, I mean, <laughs> this is such a beautiful <laughs> vision, much like the Triduum. Let's hope that it's realized one day. <laughs> so, Julian, thank you so much for, for coming in today, for, for speaking on our podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just give our listeners a brief taste of the kinds of things that you're working on, uh, where your music is heading these days. So, in addition to what I'm trying to do musically, mm. which is trying to find ways to interweave the and and build upon the logic of plain chant of four-part counterpoint as epitomized in the music of J.S. Bach mm. and allowing those to sort of open up into a larger broader world of possibilities where any harmony is possible where we're allowed to have these you know 8 10 12 voice harmonies mm. with each voice singing a different note you know that's what I'm working on musically um trying to you know find new avenues new ways to sort of bring these melodies from the past particularly of plain chant mm. into uh, the present and combine them with all the possibilities that you know the present affords mm. um, in addition to that i'm also working on trying to explore new frontiers of interdisciplinary mm. sacred art, mm. collaborating with poets, visual artists, mm. photographers, writers, dancers, creators of art of other media that I might not even know exist. Mm. And I'm very interested in exploring new possibilities for um, not just the interplay between different art forms, but for the potential to actually create new forms of art mm -hmm. altogether, informed by, inspired by the different media that we have at mm -hmm. our disposal today. And I don't even know, you know what forms th those might take, but mm -hmm. the, that's what I'm really interested in thinking about and exploring. Hmm. Well, we look forward to hearing the next compositions that you come up with. And thank you again so much for your time today, for your thoughts on sacred music and for the stories that you've told today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Griffin. It's yeah. always a pleasure to be here with you. Okay.